Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Uh, there's still time for Israel. If you guys are interested in that, let me know. Uh, also, next week I want to challenge you guys to do something. We're going to want to have a, a bring your friend to Devoted Day. And to incentivize you guys to bring a friend with you, I got a Chick-fil-A card for you. And for your friend, if you bring a friend. So you can take your friend out to dinner after the um, But yeah, I want to challenge you guys. Think of someone, invite someone, try to bring someone next Tuesday uh, to Devoted with you. So um, yeah, we'll see if anybody's able to do that. Uh, now let's open our Bibles back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to go ahead. And finish this section tonight. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, we've started in verse 11 and worked our way through 22. So I'm going to go ahead and start in 11. I'm going to read it and pray for us. But I'll only be really commenting on uh, verses 19 through 22. That's a lie. I'll, I'll be kind of uh, reviewing verses 11 as well. But uh, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So God, we do thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your revelation. We need it, Lord. We are living in a time that is chaotic. It's using. It's, it's downright satanic, Lord. And without your revelation, without the renewing of our mind, we are just going to be conformed to it, Lord. And so I pray right now that your word would speak to us, it would guide us, it would instruct us, it would uh, pierce our heart and, and, and protect us from sinning against you, that it would wash us, that it would renew our mind, that it would uh, be efficacious in just building us up into who you want us to be. You said that your word is spirit and life, Lord, and, and I believe that, that, that your word is able to impart spiritual life to us. You said man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that either from the mouth of God. So I pray right now that you would just feed us, that we would be stronger, we would be energized to go out into this world and to represent you and to glorify you to this world that needs to know you. 
So speak to us tonight. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, and we're in the second chapter, obviously. And if you look at your outlines, you can see that uh, about two-thirds of these fill-ins are already filled in for you. And that's because we're continuing uh, what we started a couple of weeks ago. We are in the last paragraph in this uh, thought process of the Apostle Paul. And it's taken us several weeks to get through this because there's just so much truth, so much theology in these few verses, these 11 verses. Uh, Ephesians 2 really is a, a, a really marvelous chapter. Some theologians, some commentators say that Ephesians 2 really is kind of the Mount Everest of the Pauline epistles. It, 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 Paul, in other words, in, in Ephesians 2 is reaching heights, reaching splendors that he seldom reaches in other chapters or other passages of his writing. So no wonder it's taking us a little bit of time to get through it. Um, and, and these verses, they're really theological. It, it's telling us who God is and, and what God has done for us. And it's absolutely essential that we come to realize that uh, who God is, what God has done for us, that we realize these theological truths before we go out and actually try to live the Christian life that Jesus and the apostles have called us to live. Uh, we need to realize who we are in Christ before we could walk with Christ, is the idea. And this is evidenced in the way that Paul writes his epistles. Uh, you can look at almost all the Pauline epistles, and the first half of it is theological truth, telling us who God is, what God's done. And then the second half is very practical. In light of these things that God has done, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to apply it to your life. And Ephesians is no different. The first three chapters, it's all theology. Chapter 4, verse 1 is, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with you have been called. In other words, in light of all this that I have said about who God is and the way that he's called you into Christ, this is how you need to live. These are the things that you need to do. And, and so it's important that we get this down, what Christ has done for us, how he's made us one, if we're actually going to be able to go out and live the unity that God is calling us to live. Think about a football team. Imagine you're coaching a high school football team or a Pop Warner football team or any other team for that matter. And could you imagine trying to call plays and teach plays to kids and and, and, and all that, if you don't teach them the fundamentals of what football is, teach them the different positions and the goals of the game and, and all of that, it, it would be a nightmare. It would be chaotic. You really wouldn't be any, able to do anything. And, and it's no different with the church. Uh, if Without the understanding of right doctrine and, and theology, uh, we're, we're going to be a mess. We're not going to know what to do. We're not going to know how to live anything out. You see, right doctrine or theology is exactly what Paul's giving us here in this chapter. In this chapter, it really is about unity, how we become one with God and, and how we become one with each other. And Paul, he, he begins with peace with God. We need to have peace with God because we can't truly have peace with each other unless we have peace with God. So he starts at the beginning of chapter 2 saying how we got reconciled to God, our, our need for salvation. Right? We need to have that vertical relationship fixed before we could have 
the horizontal relationship fixed. And so he starts with our, our condition before salvation. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1. Verse 2, we're going about with the flow of the world and we're under the influence of Satan. Verse 3, we're children of wrath, even as the rest. Then in verse 11, we were the uncircumcision. In verse 12, we were without, we're without Christ, without God's people, without God's covenants and promises, without hope, and without God. We really were in a, a dark place. We were in a place of despair. But then there's verses 4 and 13. But God, but then, right? God is going to move. He's going to take us out of this darkness, out of this despair, and he's going to bring us into Christ. In Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, he says, even when we are dead in our trans or even in, when we are dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. So we've been reconciled to God through Christ. What an amazing thing that God would take us from being his enemies to being his friends, and it's all through Christ. I'm not going to read it, but if you go to to Romans 5, you you could see how how great this reconciliation really is. Now, it's, it's worth celebrating, no doubt, but there's more. God has reconciled us not just to himself, but to each other. And it's the same Jesus that's reconciling us to each other is the one that's reconciling us to the Father. It's as though the cross, we have that vertical piece I was talking about, and it's also giving us the horizontal piece with each other. You know, the power of the cross brings peace. That really is the key to all of this. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 really is the key verse in this whole chapter. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Last week we talked about how near and far were Old Testament terms for Jew and Greek. Right? The Jews were considered near because they lived near the temple. They lived near the presence of God. The Gentiles were considered far off because they lived far from the temple. They lived far from the presence of God. I've also invested a good amount of our time talking about the relationship between Jews and Greeks in biblical time, right? They were as far apart as the two groups can be. Uh, and in some ways, this was God's design, right? The children of Israel would be separate or distinct from the people around them. However, this separation was meant to have a purpose. Israel was to be a light that displayed the true God to the nations around them. They were to be this... Uh, uh, this ambassador nation. They were to be a, a, a light. They were to represent God to the nations around them. However, they didn't do that. They failed this mission, right? They became self-focused. And, and, and they tried to use their distinction to, uh, to, to make themselves special and to push other groups away. They referred to them as the circumcision and the other groups the uncircumcision, right? They weren't worthy of being near the children of Israel. They avoided them at all costs. And the, the other nations, the, the Gentile nations, they reciprocated it, right? You're calling us the uncircumcision, so we're going to call you the circumcision. And this hatred was mutual. It went 
back and forth. The Gentiles hated the Jews just as much as the Jews hated the Gentiles. And I mentioned how Jonah is the perfect illustration of this, right? God called Jonah to a rather unique ministry among the prophets. Uh, there had been prophets to the Gentiles before, which Jonah was called to go to Nineveh to the Gentiles. However, there had never been a prophet before called to leave Israel, to go to a Gentile nation the way that Jonah was. And Jonah, he hated the Gentiles. He hated the people of Nineveh. And he knew that God was merciful, God was gracious, that if he went and preached repentance to Nineveh, that God would grant them repentance and that they would get saved. And so he didn't go. He went the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa and was going to sail to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. You see, Jonah hated this Gentile people. He had been separate from the Gentiles his whole life. This was a hard thing to overcome. Uh, Peter was having the same problem in chapter 10 of Acts. He didn't want to go to the Gentiles. It took God literally speaking to him audibly from heaven and giving him a vision for him to actually go to preach to Cornelius. Ironically enough, he was at Joppa, the place where Jonah got on the boat where he got that revelation from God to, to go and speak to Cornelius up in Caesarea. But he had a hard time with it. You know, there was some practical things. We talked about this last week that caused the separation. One of them was the temple itself, right? The, the temple had the Holy of Holies. That's where the the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the Shekinah glory of God was. And only the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur could go in there. And then there was a, another sanctuary around the Holy of Holies called the Holy Place. And only the sons of Aaron could go in there and minister. Then there was the court of the Levites. You had to be a Levite. You had to be a Levitical priest to go into that. And then there was the, the court of the, the Hebrews. You had to be a, a Hebrew man to go into that court. And then there was the court of the women. You had to be a, a Jewish woman to make it into that court. And finally, there was the court of the Gentiles. Okay? If you were a Gentile, if you weren't a Jew, that's as far as you could go. In fact, in between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews, there was a sign. And on this sign, it said, no Gentile must enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Right? So there was a physical barrier in the temple, in the place of worship, that kept the Gentiles and the Jews separate. But there was a, a, another barrier that the Gentiles had to overcome to be able to be one, and that was the law. The, the, the law, uh, especially the ceremonial law, the way that Israel was to worship, it kept them distinct from the other nations. The fact that they had to obey the Sabbath, the fact that they had to eat kosher, the fact that they had to wear different garments, all of these things were to ensure that Israel would be holy, they'd be separate, they'd be distinct from the people around them. But through the cross, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law and he took the punishment for the moral law. So this enmity, this, this certificate of, of debt, Paul calls it, is, is done away with. In, in, in Colossians 2, it says that he nailed it to the cross. Right? This, this law is no longer a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus creates a third option. 
right? It's not Jew, it's not Gentile, but it's the church in Christ. In our text, he calls it one new man, right? Those who were far off were brought near, and the two were made into one new man. It's not that the Gentiles became a part of Israel. No, both Gentiles and Jews need the gospel to be preached. They need to repent. They need to receive Jesus so that they could join the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died to make this new group called the church. Paul then used the metaphor of the body or a man to describe this new group. We are the church or one body, the body of Christ. The key verse at the end of chapter 1 is verses 22 and 23. It says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, we are the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head. Just as our head gives leadership and uh, to our body, and it coordinates what the members of our body do, does, Jesus is to be that for the body of Christ. He's to be the leader of the body. He's to coordinate the members of the body. So that's the first metaphor that Paul has given for this new man, the church. It's a, it's a body. It's a person. Now in verses 19 through 22, Paul's going to give us three more metaphors, metaphors that describe this new unity we as Gentiles have with the Jews through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore those metaphors now. Uh, but before we do, verses 11 and 12, it spoke of our alienation or who we were without the blessings of God. Right? That was letter A on our outline. In verses 12 through 18, it describes the work of Christ to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to himself in this new entity called the church. So letter B has reconciliation. Now in verses 19 through 22, it speaks of our new identity in Christ. So fill in the word identification and united. Right? So for letter A, it was alienation. For letter B, it was reconciliation. For letter C, it's identification. Who Christ has made us, has made us united. Look at verses 19 through 22. I'm sorry, we'll just take the verses as they come along. Take a little time. I fill in for number one. In Christ, we have become. In Christ, that is the important thing. And it's important that we realize it's only in Christ that these things are true of us. The things that we're going to talk about, they're not true of people of the world. It's only true of those who are in Christ. In Ephesians 2.18, it says, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. It's only through Christ that these things are true. In Christ is really the theme of the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul's writing to tell them who they are in Christ and what blessings they have in Christ. And the first of these uh, is that in Christ we are citizens of God's kingdom. Fill in the word citizens. Look at verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Have you ever known someone from another country? Uh, and, 
but they became citizens of the United States. They patronized to, to the United States. I've known a few people that have done that. I've seen a lot more people do that on television. But when you look at these folks that are receiving their citizenship of the United States, uh, they are elated with joy. They are completely overjoyed to receive citizenship because all of a sudden they have new rights and privileges in the United States that they didn't have before that. You know, uh, you guys know this, that I lived in Israel for a time. Now, Israel is a, a great place. I love being there. I love the people there. I love the food there. I love the history and being able to see the different sites and whatnot. There's a lot to love about Israel. That's why I'm excited to go back in a few months. However, as great as Israel is, I'm always excited to get back to America. And that's because I'm not a citizen in Israel. When I'm in another country, I, I, I feel a bit vulnerable. I, I really do. You know, when I was in Israel in 2018, I was actually deported from Israel uh, for being a Christian. Just because I was a Christian. They deported me. They didn't like me. And so they, they kicked me out of the country. Now, if I had been a citizen of their country, they wouldn't have been able to do that. It wouldn't have mattered if I was a Christian or if I was a Jew or if I was a Muslim or what I was because I would have had a right to be there. I would have been a citizen. It, it, you know, that's what the rights, the privileges that citizenship brings. You know, in the New Testament was written in the context of the Roman Empire. And there was great privileges. There was great rights to being a Roman citizen. On, on more than one occasion, Paul would invoke these rights. He'd say, I'm a Roman citizen. We'd appeal to Caesar. When he was about to be beaten in Jerusalem, he says, hey, you're going to treat a Roman citizen like that. And, and, and they freaked out. Right? Because... The, the rights that being a citizen brought. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they were a theocracy. It was supposed to be a country governed by God. God was nationalistic. God was represented by the nation of Israel. They were a holy nation set apart for God. However, they rejected their Messiah, and they forfeited that blessing of being a, a, a nation uh, who belonged to God. Right? And God then created another nation. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 43. This is out of the King James. It says, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, he's saying this to the Jews, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. This kingdom, this nation is going to be taken from you, and I'm going to create a new nation that's going to bear the fruits of God. What are these fruits? The fruits of repentance, the fruits of the Spirit, these types of things. And we who are New Testament believers, those of us indwelt by the Spirit of God, belong to this new nation. We belong to the nation of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, being a citizen of God's kingdom, it brings about enormous privileges, enormous blessing. In Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing of our heavenly kingdom belongs to us. There's no blessing in heaven that you do not have access to. 
That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 22, that all things belong to you. You know, this kingdom citizenship, it has blessings, no doubt. We've talked about some of those. We're going to talk about more as we go through the book of Ephesians. But it has responsibilities as well. You know, when I was in Israel, uh, I was subject to the laws of Israel, but I was also subject to the laws of America. Even when I was living in Israel, I was still required to pay taxes in America. You know, me being outside of Israel didn't absolve, or outside of the America, didn't absolve my rights or my responsibilities as an American citizen. Likewise, now I'm responsible to both the laws of America and the laws of heaven. You know, there's no law in America telling you that you have to love your neighbor, but that's a law in heaven. So I have to obey all the laws in America, but I have other laws that I have to obey. I have to love my neighbor, right? There's no law in America telling me to go to church, but the writer of the Hebrews tells me not to forsake the assembling together of myself, right? So, so having dual citizenship means we have dual responsibilities. But the main privilege of being a citizen of heaven is that we belong. We have a right to be there. Nobody will ever deport us from heaven. We have full rights and access to all that heaven offers. Notice in verse 19 how we're called the saints. Saints, it's the word hagias in Greek. It literally means holy ones, set apart ones. Right? The idea is that we are holy. We're, we're set apart. We're, we're distinct from the world for the God's use. It really goes back to the tabernacle. And you look at the furnishings of the tabernacle, the, the different articles that, that were used in the worship in the tabernacle. And what did they all say? Holy unto the Lord. Right? They were set apart for special use and worship to Yahweh. And that's you and me. We're saints. So why do we call ourselves so many other things? Why do we allow others to call us less than saints? Or... Why is it so hard for us to remember that we're saints, that, that we're holy? The way that God sees us is that we are set apart. We are holy. We belong to him. Often I hear Christians say, oh, I'm just a, another sinner saved by grace. That may be true. That's not the way God sees us. God never calls the church sinners in the New Testament. It's saints. To the saints who are at Ephesus. To the saints who are in Corinth to the saints who are in Rome. That's how Paul's addressing those letters. Well, these aren't necessarily mature Christians. The book of Corinth is written to carnal believers, believers who are making a mess of things. But they're still called saints. It doesn't matter how much we sin. You are a saint because God sees you as absolutely righteous because you have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. You couldn't be more righteous than you are right now in God's eyes because you are as righteous as Christ. 2 Corinthians, it says this in chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteous. Can't get more righteous than Christ. We need to think of ourselves in the way that God sees us, not in the way that we feel about ourselves, not in the way that our neighbor sees us, not the way that the rest of the church sees us. God sees you as absolutely righteous. You couldn't be more righteous in his eyes. He couldn't love you more than he loves you. He loves you enough to call you saint. You need to think of yourself as a saint. 
So the first one is, is that we are citizens of heaven. Secondly, we're members of God's family. Fill in the word members. Look at the second part of verse 19. It says, but you are God's household. You're God's household. And now we're getting more intimate, right? It started out we're citizens of heaven. Uh, we're a nation, right? But now it's getting to a household or a family. That's more intimate. In the Bible, this term house or household, it's often used as speaking of a family, right? It's spoken of the house of David, meaning the descendants of David. Remember David, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. What was Nathan at first were like, great, yeah, go do that. That's a good idea. And then God told Nathan, well, why'd you say that? I didn't say that that was okay. Go tell him, he's not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for him. And David took that as meaning that one of his descendants was going to be king forever. One of his descendants was going to sit on the throne and rule the messianic kingdom. It wasn't, he saw it as his lineage, his descendants. He was going to build him a line of descendants. You can read about this in Samuel chapter 7. It's a great passage. So this word household could mean a family. We've been made part of God's family. We're in the family of God. This has already been hinted at in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Father is a familial term. Right? If we share a father, we are of one family. Remember Jesus? Uh, it says this in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. Jesus, he's teaching, he's arguing with the scribes, the Pharisees, and whatnot. And his family literally thinks pain. So they're on the rescue mission. Hey, we need to go get rest Jesus. We need to bring him back. He's going to say something crazy and get himself killed. It's going to be hugely embarrassing for our family. And whatnot. And it says this in Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was saying his disciples who were actually doing the will of God, who were believing in him, were more his family than his paternal brothers and sisters who are outside. We are the family of God. Now we've been adopted into God's family. We learned about that in Ephesians 1. In verses 4 and 5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We've been predestined to adoption as sons. So we've been adopted into the family of God. But we've also been born into the family of God. We've been birthed into the family of God through the new birth. Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again. He says that the flesh could produce flesh, but the spirit produces the spirit. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of 
God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed at what I say to you. You must be born again. We've been adopted into the family, and we've been born into the family. We have complete status as family members. We have the family name. We are Christians. And the longer that we're in the family, the more we start to take on the family resemblance. We start to look like our Father. We start to look like Jesus. That's called sanctification. We are the family of God. You know, families, they have the same goals. They mostly go in the same direction. They care for each other. If one hurts, they all hurt. If one rejoices, they all rejoice. They also share responsibilities. When I was growing up, I had chores that I did. I did the outside chores. I did the inside chores. And usually with our parents' help, all the chores got done. A little extra motivation. But that's the way that, that the church is. right? We, we, we share responsibilities. And yeah, we can't accomplish everything without our Father's help, but He's there to help. He's there to encourage. Right? And just like it's true of the family, it's true in the church. Think about how many different teams of people we need to have one service here. Right? You have Pastor Bob, he's going to preach. You have the worship team. You have the ushers, the tech team, the children's ministry, the cafe team, the parking ministry, security, a medical team. I'm sure there's others that I have forgotten. But each part is intricate to what we do. We couldn't have the Sunday service without any one of those parts. You know, no one part is more important than the other parts. We're all functioning together as one family, as one body, trying to accomplish the will of our Father. You know, when we act as a family, when we're united as a family, God is he really is. In Psalm 133, verse 1, he says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell in unity together. It's like the precious oil on the beard, or on the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. A great verse on this, Hebrews 3.6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. Firm and holy. We are the household of God. Thirdly, we are stones in God's temple. Fill in the word stones. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief or the cornerstone, in whom the whole foundation or the home building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We're stones in God's temple built upon the foundation of the apostles the prophets. To be an apostle, you had to meet certain criteria. You had to have seen the risen Lord. That's Acts 1.22. But you also had to perform uh, confirming miracles. The, the New Testament teaches that there was miracles that accompanied the apostles' teaching that validated them as being apostles. It's interesting. If you read the book of Acts, 
uh, and you know all the miracles that Peter did and all of the miracles that the Apostle Paul did, you'll notice something very interesting. It's, it's all the same. Every miracle that Peter performs in the first half of Acts, Paul performs in the second part of Acts. And I think what Luke is, the Spirit of God is saying through Luke here is, is that the Apostle Paul is just as much an apostle as Peter was. It's confirming the apostleship of Paul. So we have the apostles, but there's also the prophets. Now, when we hear this, the apostles and prophets, we would typically expect the order to be reversed. Right, the prophets and the apostles, because the prophets were mainly in the Old Testament. But he isn't speaking about Old Testament prophets here. He's speaking about New Testament prophets. There's New Testament prophets as well. And this becomes clear in chapter 3. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, Paul writes, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He's saying, hey, there was this mystery of how Jew and Gentile are going to be one in the church, and the other generations didn't know it, but it's been revealed to the apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Well, it couldn't have been the Old Testament prophets because that generation had no idea what this mystery was. So it has to be the New Testament apostles and prophets. You see, the apostles and prophets in the New Testament were the mouthpieces of God to the church. They heard from God and they spoke for God, laying down the apostles' doctrine. They were the givers of the church's teachings. You know, this office of apostle was rather limited. There was the 12 and maybe a few more. It speaks of Barnabas being an apostle, James being an apostle, but it was rather uh, limited, right? They were the leaders of the church, but there were believers meeting all over the place who were in the faith, and they had uh, questions. They needed direction. They needed counsel, and so God raised up these prophets to speak to that. Now, today there's groups like the New Apostolic Reformation uh, or the NAR, that claim to be apostles and prophets. Uh, I, I think the fact that you could pay just a couple hundred bucks and become a prophet or an apostle kind of shows the in, uh, how invalid this is. But I guess people pay that. But the proof that these offices no longer exist is right here. It says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These offices were foundational roles, not ongoing roles. Similarly, the Catholics like to say Peter was the first pope, and since then there's been this people uh, section, right? It's gone on from pope to pope. It's been passed on. But here we see that can't be because the office of apostle was a foundational office. It wasn't a continuing office. It's what the church is built on. It's built upon the apostles and the prophets. It's not something that continues. Now, yes, Christ wants unity. He wants his church to be united. It's very important. It's, he says that's how the people are going to know that he came from the Father in John 17. However, it's not unity at all costs, right? It's unity based upon the apostles and the prophets 
teaching. Right? They were the foundation. They laid the, 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 the teaching. They laid the doctrine of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's what the unity was based on, uh, based upon the teaching of the New Testament. So it's not all, hey, you know, like, I don't like theology. That's kind of divisive. That's a really stupid thing to say because our unity as Christians is based on theology. It's based on what the apostles taught in the New Testament. Without that, we have no unity. We have no church. So, you know, we need the Bible is the idea. In Acts 2.42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I believe that Calvary Chapel has been so, so blessed over the years because of our commitment to teaching the apostles' doctrine. Whenever the apostles' doctrine is being clearly taught to the church, the church is built up. The church grows. Jesus says that my words are spirit and life. The, the, the very teaching of the words of Jesus, the words of Christ, the words of the apostles through Jesus, or the words of Jesus through the apostles brings life. It, 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 re, it strengthens, it edifies his church. And of course, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one who holds the whole building together. It's our focus on Christ, our commitment to Christ, our being on mission for Christ, our desire to please Christ and to glorify Christ that holds the whole church together. You could have this wall who's Jew and this wall who's Gentile, and it's that chief cornerstone holding them both up and in place together. Now, this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, it's not this New Testament and uh, we have evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls that Old Testament believers saw that this idea of Christ being the cornerstone is a, a messianic prophecy, that it was the Messiah who was going to fulfill this role of cornerstone. And they got it from Isaiah 28, 16. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am in laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation Firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then in Psalm 118, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So, all through the Old Testament, they were looking forward to this Messiah who would come and fulfill this role of being the cornerstone. They just rejected Jesus as being that person. But verse 21 says, In whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, what's really interesting to me is in these verses, it's implying that the building is, is still being made. Four times there's words like building, growing, being fitted together, being used. In fact, we see the, the whole trinity in these verses, right? It's we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're being built together into a dwelling of God, and it's in the Spirit. In other words, it's the entire Trinity being involved in building God's house. God is the one who's building his house. Now, I don't know how the inner workings of the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity work. Uh, I guess we'll have to get to heaven, and we can figure that out. But what we must remember is, is this is God's work. God's the one building the house. 
We need to remember that the builder's the one who chooses the stones. The builder's the one who prepares the stones. The builder's the one who places the stones where they're going to go. Now, we need to remember this, that in the New Testament, we're told that we are both individually the temple of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19. And we are corporately the temple of God as well. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, it says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. That word you, it's a, it's a plural you. It's speaking of a group or an entity. It's really saying the church comprised of believers is the temple, and therefore holy. And, and this idea is, the idea is, is that God is building a temple and every time somebody places faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, this new stone is added to the temple. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. But the, the apostles, through their preaching, people were getting saved and new stones were being added to the temple. And Paul says here in verse 22 that we're being fitted together. And this the, the word in Greek, it, it really carries the idea of being constructed to fit snugly, right? E each piece is being designed that it just fits perfectly in its spot in the temple. Now, I, I, if you think about it, it's interesting the way that the, the temple was built because these stones, they weren't quarried right there where they were going to be fit in. No, they were quarried far away. There wasn't to be any tools or sounds being made as the temple was being built. They would quarry the rocks out. They would make sure that they were the exact specifications. Then they would bring them to the temple and put them in place. Now we on earth are rocks or stones being quarried to fit snugly into the temple of heaven. When we're ready and we fit, we're going to be taken to heaven and placed into that temple. So we shouldn't be surprised when Joe the Hammer or Susie Sandpaper comes into contact with us. God's using these difficult people and these difficult situations to kind of quarry us out and get us ready to fit the temple in heaven. But we're also stones in his temple here and now as well. I love what Peter says about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. I love this. He's saying we're living stones being built into the temple of God. Now, if you think about it, if you look at a building that's made out of stone or, or maybe brick, these stones or bricks aren't kind of just floating in the air independent of each other. No, they're placed on top of other bricks, and there's bricks and stones on the side of them holding them into place. And, and that's who we are in Christ. You see, we need each other to support us and hold us up and, 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 and to keep us in line with that chief cornerstone, to keep us in the place that we're supposed to be. And, and, and that's how the body of Christ is supposed to function as God's temple. We're supposed to support each other. We're supposed to keep each other in place. We're supposed to keep each other in line with Christ, the chief cornerstone. I love that. You know, I'll finish with this. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. But God delivered and let the children of Israel into the 
God walked with Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve blew it. They sinned, right? And they were kicked out of the garden, had no fellowship with God. But then in Exodus, God delivered the children of Israel and led them into the wilderness where he dwelt with them. Right? That, that, that's what the wilderness wandering was supposed to teach, that God is with them, that God will be with them. He will protect them. He will provide for them. He will dwell with them. And he dwelt with them first with the tabernacle and then in a greater way with the temple. But Israel was disobedient and worshipped idols. So Ezekiel tells us that the, the glory departed. He said, Ichabod. God left the temple. But then God's presence returned about 400 years later in Christ. John 114, uh, that the word became flesh and literally tabernacled with us. God was with us in Christ. But then Christ died and ascended to the Father. And what happened to God's presence? God's presence on Pentecost came and he filled his church. And now we as the church are the presence of God in this world. The way that non-believers are going to come into presence God is through us. In the book of Revelation, we are a kingdom of priests and kings. Right? We are to represent the kingship of Christ. We're to take dominion over this earth, the thing that Adam and Eve forfeited when they sinned. And we are to represent Christ to this world through preaching the gospel, through intercessory prayer. But we are the presence of God. We're the only temple that this world gets. If this world wants to know who Christ is, if this world wants to come into God's presence, it's going to be through us. The question is, are we going to be faithful to do that? Represent Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this study. I thank you for this chapter. I've been amazed at what you've done for us and what you've turned us into and what you have in store for us. And it's all through your doing. It's all through what Jesus did, Lord. I pray that we would remember that we are holy in your eyes. We're set apart. We're destined for glory. That we are uh, as righteous in your eyes as we will ever be and will never be loved more than we are loved now by you. Don't let us buy the lies that this world is telling us. Let us believe your word. God, I thank you for these people that are here. I pray that you would bless them, that you would use them the rest of this week, that you'd put people in front of us that we could tell that they have access to God through Christ and the Spirit if they can repent and believe in Jesus. Lord, and, and I just pray for this group. I, I pray that you continue to grow it and use it to serve you and to fulfill your purposes and to glorify your Son. But I thank you for everyone here. I pray that you just bless their drive home, bless the rest of their week, and uh, use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.